Father God, we have rightly sang the great I am, the one who is pre-existent, has never known a moment without existence, was not created, is not dependent upon anyone or anything. That is you. You are the I am. And Father, we readily acknowledge that we are your creation, that we are utterly dependent upon you, that we are rightly required to follow your word, that it is inspired, that it is inerrant. And Father, we ask that you would impart it to our hearts, that we might be transformed by truth, and that our lives would be beacons of light to a world that is lost. Father, guide our time. Guide what I say to be correct and speak to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The recorded call to the Coral Springs Police Station sent new shockwaves through the evangelical world. It was about a fallen pastor who this time was accused but has not yet been convicted, though certainly the witness is credible, accused of child abuse. This particular pastor pastored the largest church in Florida. He is exhibit A for the church acting in foolish ways. He had a background that was terribly sinful. He came to a knowledge of Christ, and yet he wasn't discipled. He wasn't held accountable. He wasn't encouraged to move slowly and to grow. He wasn't watched. Instead, he was handed a platform. He was handed a microphone. He had the timing of a comedian he had the looks of a Hollywood actor. He was light on scripture and heavy on illustration, and he garnered large crowds. Let me back up and tell you about his life. His name is Bob, and Bob graduated from high school and was brought on by a record studio, a recording house with many top artists. He was in the city that he lived in, the entertainment. When an artist would come to the city, he had almost unlimited resources to take the artist out, and they enjoyed all sorts of activities, some good and some very bad. He became an addict, and even in the 70s, with the psychedelic drugs, he was a little too much, and the recording studios let him go. His 20s was spent running a very seedy gentleman's club. During that time, he said his life was a haze of drugs and alcohol, and he doesn't remember much of it. He hit a low in his life, a lull in his life. He knew he was going nowhere. 
And his brother literally threw a Bible at him. And the Bible fell open to John 3. And he read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And he professed faith in Christ. Almost immediately he claimed that the draws of his life and the darkness of his life was instantly gone. We now know that not to be true. He resisted any formal discipleship. He refused any formal education or informal, a Bible college, a Christian college, a seminary. He met a woman and immediately married her, and the two of them moved to Florida, and he opened a church. And from that church, they began to reach out to a bunch of young people who had come to Florida for a summer of love. And they had found psychedelic drugs, and they had found the Grateful Dead not to be lasting in fulfillment. And they made their way into this church. And the church began to grow, and it began to grow. And then we come to April of 2014, and everything unraveled. And when it unraveled, it unraveled in a spectacularly horrific way. It was demonstrated that he had had a series of adulterous relationships, almost from the moment of marriage to the moment of being caught. He was addicted to pornography, and that had driven him into all sorts of very dark areas in his life. When his life was unraveled, he immediately responded by divorcing his wife. When the elders of the church were confronted by the authorities, and they were asked had there been complaints about this man, especially when he was accused of child, or child abuse, the elders refused to answer. The victims deserve better. The name of Christ deserves better. The bride of Christ deserves better. And from this, his name has been solid. The name of Christ has been solid. It has gone into all sorts of news events, not only in Florida, but really across our country, about this man who had been held up as a beacon of light, though very little light actually came from his pulpit. And he collapsed. And this man has been held in ridicule ever since because the sins of this man were not even committed by the average person who does not believe in Christ. In other words, his life was far more corrupt and sinful, at least to the average person, than the average American. And that's exactly what we have in today's text. We have a professed Christ follower in the church at Corinth who is engaged in activities that scandalize not the believing world, it scandalize the unbelieving world. And that's exactly what Bob did for a number of years. Let me pick up in our text. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 to 8. It is actually reported 
that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you ought to be mourning, but instead you are arrogant. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. Now we remember our setting. Paul is planted the church at Corinth on the second missionary journey. He'll go back on the third missionary journey. Five years apart, he'll write 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. He'll write it to this church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, in the southern part of Greece. And in the first century, it was one of the seediest parts of the Roman Empire. It was a place where the phrase to Corinthianize meant to commit immorality. And it was a phrase used throughout the Roman Empire. A Corinthian girl was a prostitute. Above ancient Corinth is the Acro-Corinth. It's a very large hill. You can get up there and still the footings of the temple or the palace of Epaphrodite is up there. Historians disagree on how corrupt it was, but many believe that it housed up to a thousand prostitute priestesses during high festivals. That was the culture. And so it was a very seedy culture. It wasn't in any way a Victorian culture. And yet what is going on in the church scandalized what was outside the church. It's perhaps like the, the Bakken region today in northern Dakota and Montana where we have these men camps as they draw resources from the ground. And because of that, we have a problem with human trafficking and prostitution, unlike perhaps anywhere else in the United States. That's what's going on in ancient Corinth. And the text tells us that a man has his father's wife, gune tua patras. It doesn't mean his birth mother, it means his stepmother. It's not an Oedipus complex or an Oedipus sin. In fact, they're not even related. But in the Roman Empire, this was absolutely considered incest. Cicero, the Roman historian, who wrote 80 books on Roman history, tells us in his lifetime he had only heard an occasion like this once, and it was scandalous. It was a crime punishable by law. 
we have Tacitus in his annals who tells us that this type of activity is so unknown in the Roman Empire as to scandalize everyone. And yet, verse 2 reads, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, the church was the most progressive in the community. The church was calling evil good and good evil. The church was leading the way. Now we have to understand that if somebody is involved in a sin and their heart is broken over it, they confess, they agree with God, and they turn from their sin, they repent, we ought to be their greatest cheerleaders. We ought to come alongside and put our arm around them. We ought to spur one another on towards love and their deeds. That's what the church ought to do for among us, somebody who is turned from and confessed sin. But that's not what's going on in the text. What's going on in the text is that this man is guilty of not only a sin, but a crime in his community. And the church is saying, yes, this is good. Notice how progressive we are. Come and, and join us. We're not going to say anything is wrong. Everything is right within us. It's not that uncontemporary with today. We live in a day and age where some call good what God calls evil and some call evil what God calls good. If statistics are to be believed, morality is a big deal in the church of Jesus Christ. If statistics are to be believed, a number of people are engaging in intimacy outside of marriage, before marriage. God says that marriage is one man, one woman in a covenant relationship that is recognized by the Lord. It's not in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. It's not outside of marriage. Yet we live in a day and age where many are calling evil what God calls good, marriage, one man, one woman, and many are calling good what God calls evil, all sorts of immorality. That's the day and age in which you and I live. We live in a day and age where we now vote on what marriage is, or more realistically, it is told to us by the courts what marriage is, but God has already defined marriage as one man and one woman. God has already defined intimacy as a good and right relationship in a husband-wife covenant. That's what God has said is right. Everything else outside of those bounds, God has said is wrong. As I think of my own life, when I think of the relationships that I have, I have a number of relationships with married couples who are pulling and striving and working on their marriage. Praise God. Yay, God, in their lives. I know a number of singles who are guarding their purity and who are longing, perhaps, for a marriage relationship, but are vowing to live the way that God has 
required them to live. Yea, them, yea, God. I know some other individuals that are struggling and they're going outside of their marriage relationship and, and they need my prayers, but they don't need my approval and they won't get it because it's wrong, it's sinful, it's damaging their hearts. The Lord knows full well that when we go outside of a husband-wife relationship and a dating relationship, we give a part of ourself to somebody else. And then if that relationship breaks up, while well, God can and does forgive when we confess and repent, there's consequences that are not removed. And sometimes those consequences hurt the next relationship and the relationship after that. God wants to spare us from that. He has created intimacy as a one man, one woman. I have friends that have same-sex attraction, and yet they're living victorious, God-glorifying lives. They're not feeding their temptation. They're not feeding their lust. They're not acting on it. They're going in the direction of the Lord. I have a few friends that are gay. In fact, if you were to go on my Facebook page, you would probably pick somebody out very readily by the comments that this gentleman writes. And you might say, oh, man, why doesn't he block that guy? Not a chance. We've been friends since we were in elementary school. We double-dated uh, he did not come out of the closet until later in high school. Sometimes, I, I, I chuckle at this, sometimes he likes Highland activities. He's a professional gay dancer. He's an award-winning swimmer. He's the most physically fit person in the 50s that I know. And he's my friend. And I have the opportunity to sometimes share the gospel with him, sometimes to share truth with him. I don't compromise. He doesn't compromise. I'm real. He's real. And we're friends. And I have the opportunity, perhaps someday, I pray, to lead him to a saving knowledge of Christ. Why would I ever abandon that kind of friendship? But what I can't do is compromise my values or pretend to be something that I'm not or to in any way suggest that I think what he does with his life is good. In fact, I don't think it's good and I think it's hurting his soul and I love him too much to pretend otherwise. So does Paul. And so Paul says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And you read that and you say, whoa, little decaf, Paul. Hand the man over to Satan. That's about the kindest thing Paul could say. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, treat the individual as not one that is enlightened by the gospel, but one that desperately needs the gospel. Where does Satan hold sway? In the world, right? 
hand him over to the world. How do we treat the world? How do we treat an unbeliever? We pray for an unbeliever. We live to the best of our ability a God-honoring life before an unbeliever. We don't hide our light under a bushel to an unbeliever. We live out truth to an unbeliever. We welcome the unbeliever to hear the truths of Scripture. And we don't compromise what we say because they're there. We love them too much for that. And we sincerely care about them too much for that. That's how we treat an unbeliever. But we don't allow an unbeliever to have a mic and a platform in church. We don't allow them to lead in worship. We don't allow them to teach. We don't allow them to vote at a congregational meeting. We don't allow them in any way to impact others because as verses 6 to 8 say, the leaven goes throughout everything so that if we begin to compromise, that lowers the standards among all of us The leaven goes out and impacts all of us. And so an unbeliever is not going to be welcome to teach or to lead or to influence. But we absolutely, with sincerity, want to teach and lead and influence an unbeliever to light. That's how we interact with an unbeliever. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hand them over to Satan Allow him to experience the love of the church, but never to lead in the church. To experience the prayers of church people, but never to lead in prayer, not publicly. Allow him to experience what an authentic life looks like, but don't let him influence others, because that leaven will go out and will impact others in a negative way. That's what Paul is saying. Hand them over to Satan. Now the next thing I want to bring up is probably believed by three quarters, maybe 80% of scholars where there's probably 20 or 25% that would say, I don't think this is right. But I agree with what I'm about to say, so I'm going to share it with you. There's five years in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And Paul has said, hand the man over to Satan. Treat him like an unbeliever. Don't assume he knows the gospel. Share the gospel. Pray for him. Love him. Care for him. Give him salt and light. And then five years later, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And I think he addresses the same situation. And this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 8. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he has caused it to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now if you think about that text and you associate the two together, you come to this conclusion. Paul says, okay, five years later, 
He seems to have confessed his sin. He seems to have turned from his sin. Maybe for the first time, uh, he actually has believed in Jesus Christ. Maybe he professed Christ before. But now he really believes in Christ. And Paul says, now, this is how we ought to act, church. Don't trust him. Don't include him. Make sure he's not in your small group. And if he's in your Sunday school class, he's got to sit in the front row because that's where the greatest sinners are. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not light on sin in this church. So if we in any way ever allow this individual any opportunity to minister publicly, then we are a weak church. Except he doesn't say any of that. None of it. He says, you know, it's been five years. There seems to have been some confession and some repentance. Repentance means to turn towards the Lord and away from sin. Confession means to agree with God. There seems to be that in his life. And so let's embrace him. Let's not allow him to be so discouraged that he walks away and never comes back. Let's show him the next step of love the fellowship of the brethren, let's, let's bring him in, let's even find maybe a role for him, slowly, so that he builds up confidence, so that we're, we're building into his life and not giving him too much opportunity too quickly or he'll become puffed up with pride. But let's, let's act on his behalf for the kingdom. And that's what God wants us to do. He's not interested in a church that compromises. He's not interested in a church that calls good what God has called evil or calls evil what God has called good. He's not interested in a church that hides the truth under a bushel basket. He's not interested in a church that's hypocritical that says one thing on Sunday and acts something different on Monday. He's interested in a church that is filled with broken individuals who are taking the next step in our relationship with the Lord, who spur one another on in love and good deeds, who seek to live out with grace and mercy the truth, but we don't compromise the truth regardless of what society says. He's interested in a church that understands the second part of the passage I read, let me read 1 Corinthians 5. I want to read now verses 9. I'll read actually all the way to 13. I wrote to you in my letter. Now we have to understand that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians that we know of. Two of which that are inspired, that are held in scripture. So this is a letter he's referring to that we don't have. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. If you underline, the next three words are so critical. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Meaning, the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers. Or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, or reveler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Let's go back to my gay friend. The Bible's not saying do not associate with someone of immorality that's outside the church. It didn't say that. It would say if he were inside the church, he was a professed brother, he was living a double life, and he was acting one way on Sunday and quite different on Monday, then we should have some bro talks. And there should be some accountability And there might even be a day in which I say, you know what? I've got to now start treating you like an unbeliever. I'm going to be praying for your soul. I'm going to be sharing the gospel with you. I'm going to be living before you. But you can't have influence. You can't. But those outside the church, how are they acting? According to the flesh, they're acting as someone who doesn't have the spirit within them. And what's my job as part of the church? To be salt and light. Never to compromise. Never to hide my light or to change my values that I get from the word of God. In spite of the fact that they're not culturally accepted. I don't compromise. I don't hide. But I be salt and light and I do it with grace. And So I think it would be a travesty. If I would say to my friend who I grew up with, who I love dearly. You know, because you and I have absolutely nothing in common in lifestyle. And we have absolutely nothing in common in values. No, I'm I'm not interested in, in being your friend. I need to be his friend. I want him to be my friend. And maybe, maybe by God's grace, my friend will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to be his authentic friend. And if you look at my Facebook and you see him and you read his comments and you think poorly of me, okay, that's a price I can pay. Because as I read the text, the text says he's not the one that I'm worried about. I'm worried about people like me that know exactly what to say and exactly how to live in front of others but might have a duplicitous and double life. That's the one that I need to be coming alongside and being a little bit tougher with. But to a world that is lost, I need to be authentic. And I need to extend grace and share the gospel without compromise. Let's pray. Father God, uh, What a contemporary text, one that could be written really today and certainly has application to all of us because this is where we live. And Father, we want to be the type of Christ followers, the type of church that never compromises truth, that doesn't call good what is evil and doesn't call evil good. We want to stand on your word. We want to spur one another on. We want to address the hypocrisy that each of us probably have in our lives. 
and empowered by your spirit to turn from it. And we want to love a world without compromise and without changing who we are and what we believe. And we ask that your spirit will work in the lives of, of loved ones who don't know you, that they may come to know you. But even if that doesn't happen, Lord, allow us to be authentic and real and salt and light. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.